Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa Buddhang tamang sanghang namasami So welcome to everybody who's uh, gathered together uh, this afternoon. Uh, today is the uh, the full moon of July, and according to our uh, Buddhist tradition customs, uh, this is referred to as Asala Puja, the uh, <coughs> the full moon day, which uh, is the day when the the Buddha gave the first teaching on the Middle Way and the Four Noble Truths to his five companions in the the Deer Park, Disipatana, outside of Varanasi. About uh, 2,600 some odd years ago. So uh, we take this as a, a celebration day. It's also the, the time when we begin the rains retreat in Asia. This is the beginning of the monsoon season. So this is the time for the rainy season retreat to begin. So uh, tomorrow evening uh, we start that formal retreat period. Although our winter retreat has carried on through the spring on account of the coronavirus lockdown retreat. <laughs> So it's uh, ongoing uh, forms of retreating that we have been participating in. But uh, today uh, I feel is a, a good, very good opportunity to consider this is the day, at least according to our traditions, our customs, our understanding, when the Buddha laid out the, the teaching on the, the Four Noble Truths. And as it said, uh, he set the wheel of Dhamma rolling, the Dhamma Chakra Bhavatana. Sutta is the, the discourse on setting in motion the wheel of the Dhamma. And the, the Buddha Rupa behind me here in the temple at Amaravati is called Pra Buddha Dhammachak Ramaravadi, which uh, is a sort of Thai rendering of the Pali, meaning uh, the, uh, the venerable Buddha who sets in motion the wheel of Dhamma in the deathless realm. Uh, that was given, the, the, the name of this Buddha image was given by the, the late uh, Sangharaja of Thailand, uh, Somdet uh, Nyana Sangwon. And uh, he sort of derived the name from his own sort of inner uh, say, searching when the Lumpur Sumedha requested him to, to give a name when the, the Buddha Rupa was being made in, in Thailand. And uh, part of this was because the, the teaching of the Four Noble Truths was very much at the center of Lumpur Sumedha's practice, also for Lumpur Cha and the, the, the Thai forest tradition in particular, and uh, the um, the depth of wisdom and and uh, the qualities of, of liberation that uh, can be seen coming forth from the investigation of the Four Noble Truths was uh, something that had uh, been, say, inspiring and forming uh, Lumpur Sumedho's life uh, throughout his time as a monk. And so when Amravati opened, uh, he, he wanted some particular way of uh, keeping the focus on the Dhammachaka Sutta, on the Four Noble Truths and that setting in motion of the, of the wheel of Dhamma. So today, Dhammachaka Day, uh, the Asala Puja Day, is a good day to bring attention to those Four Noble Truths. And even though we might know the, the text of them, uh, suffering, origin, cessation, path, it's not too difficult to, to uh, say, learn the words or to understand the, the basic concepts. But 
as I was saying to some others this morning, there's this particularly poignant and say direct teaching that the Buddha gives where he says it's because of not understanding four things that you and I and all living beings have continued to, to travel and trudge through, the, through this long round of births and deaths, rebirths and, and redeaths. And these are uh, the uh, not, under, not understanding dukkha, uh, the experience of dissatisfaction, discontent, and uh, not knowing its origin, not knowing uh, the way that it ceases, or the possibility of it ceasing, and also then the not knowing the way that leads to the cessation, the ending of that dukkha. So that uh, this is a, a, a simple teaching, but it cuts right to the very core of our lives. And, and in this world today, there are you know, so many difficulties, not just the uh, coronavirus uh, uh, that's impacting so many countries around the planet and causing so many changes uh, and, and uh, the pain and death of the illness uh, so impacting so many people's lives. But there's all kinds of, of social inequities, difficulties, the whole you know, Black Lives uh, Matter movement that has been extremely active and, and say, vigorously engaged with trying to help change people's perceptions in a skillful manner in the last uh, few weeks. But also the you know, all around the world, and there's uh, in uh, every human society, there's the, the oppression of the, the, the weak by the strong, and the social inequalities you know, everywhere, in every, uh, every place you look around the world, there is uh, this kind of social suffering. Uh, also just within families, the, the way that we find it so difficult to get along with each other, parents with children, sisters with brothers, sisters with sisters, brothers with brothers. Uh, the, uh, the Buddha was a, a very wise, very intelligent, well-informed person, it seems, and uh, he considered carefully uh, he had the opportunity to engage in po the political power. He was a crown prince. He could have taken over the kingdom of, uh, of, of uh, the, the Sakyans in the Himalayan uh, foothills. He was extremely knowledgeable. He could have been a brilliant doctor. His, uh, his knowledge of, of uh, the, um, uh, the way that nature works was extremely profound. Uh, and uh, well, many, many different things he could have done with his life, but uh, I feel that we are the very um, blessed beneficiaries of the fact that he chose to not put his attention on the, uh, the 10,000, the, the uh, ten, 10 millions of, uh, tens of millions of different social issues or, or biological issues or, or familial issues that uh, were, say, uh, what he could put his attention into, but he he realized what was most important was to get right to the very core, to the very heart of what is the the malaise, the the uh, the, the illness that besets us all, the difficulties and the the inequities, uh, the disease that uh, affects us all. And so, uh, this uh, um, formulation of the Four Noble Truths it, it said that it's put into the uh, the structure that it is because it's a a kind of medical diagnosis that dukkha is the symptom of this spiritual disease and uh, craving tanha the various kinds of craving the craving for sense pleasure craving to be something to become craving to to not be to to not exist to not feel uh, vibhava tanha these are the different kinds of craving that's the the cause of this illness this ailment 
the, the prognosis, the possibility is well-being can be realized. Dukkha niroda, that dukkha can end. There can be a quality of perfect balance. There can be a life lived free of that sense of wrongness. Even if the body is ill, or even if you're still poor, or you're still... Uh, have uh, you know, hunger or difficulty that the mind can be with that and, and not create suffering around it that uh, that is possible that's a potential for us and then the buddha laid out the the fourth truth as the way the path the medicine that uh, leads to that quality uh, of well-being so these kind of words are, are very frequently repeated and uh, that uh, we've um, probably all of those who are gathered here today or listening in, watching this from around the world have, have heard these words over and over. But uh, uh, the, um, the thing that makes a difference is applying that. So whatever the area of concern or interest uh, is within our life, whether it's a family argument, whether it's an illness in our body, whether it's a, the, the laws that govern our behavior in society or how... Um, wealth and power are distributed uh, by who makes decisions uh, who gets the who gets the good stuff and who gets the leftovers or who gets nothing at all um, that uh, these are these different areas of interest and concern that, that we have the different areas of work that we have you know, in each of these different areas whether it's in the family in the workplace in society uh, in whatever field it might be the the uh, the Four Noble Truths, uh, that principle, uh, it uh, pertains, it operates in every single domain. So that whether, uh, whether we're acting in the social sphere, we're a politician or we're a social reformer, whether we're a, uh, a therapist, whether we're a, a parent, we're a mother or a father, whether we're a, a, school, uh, a school kid, whether we're a Buddhist nun or a monk, uh, whatever nationality we might be, the, these four truths, these four principles operate. Uh, and so the encouragement uh, that, uh, that we have with the teaching and the possibility that we've inherited from the Buddha is to see, uh, are we suffering? Is there suffering? Is there dukkha? Is there that feeling of wrongness or it shouldn't be this way? Uh, <clears throat> where is it coming from? Uh, what's, what, where is this feeling of, of wrongness uh, say, rooted? Where, where is its ground? And then uh, that looking at the, the source of that, then there is the, the recognition of it's coming from, I don't want things to be this way, I want them to be that way. If only I wasn't here, if only I was over there, then everything would be great. <laughs> if only I wasn't me, if I was just somebody else, that would be, that would be so wonderful, that would be, that would, life would be so much better. Whether it's, as I said, whether it's in terms of education, or physical health, or the family, society, uh, but whatever it might be, we can bring attention to that the, that area of friction, that feeling of abrasion, that that feeling of wrongness. Bring attention to that, seeing where it's coming from, uh, recognizing that cause, and then the encouragement is to let go. Uh, with each of the truths, there's a, a task involved with it. Dukkha needs to be apprehended to be realized. Uh, the cause of it, uh, the grasping or clinging, tanha, that craving, uh, needs to be let go of, to be uh, to be relaxed. And then, when that uh, that is uh, say actualized, when that is that, that letting go happens, then there is dukkha niroda. That maybe, as I, as I was saying, of course, we 
we, if we're attached to a feeling of hunger and we relax the attitude towards the hunger, we don't take it so personally or don't get so worried about it, but still, we're still hungry. <laughs> but the mind doesn't make it into a problem or a thing that shouldn't be. It doesn't mean that we're passive or don't do anything about it. You know, if, if we're hung, feeling hungry and then some food uh, appears in front of us, doesn't mean that we don't eat, but uh, what it means is that the mind is not creating that uh, tension around it. It's not creating that that quality of of uh, agitation around it. And the way that that is brought into the different dimensions of of our life is the the eightfold path in our in our views, in our in our intentions, in our speech, our actions, our livelihood, in the way we train our minds, in in the in the effort that we make uh, to do things, the, the uh, uh, capacity that we have to be mindful and to, to concentrate the mind in all the different areas of our life, in the areas of, of behavior, the virtue, sila, in the, in the areas of, of concentration, mind training, and then in the area of wisdom, seeing things according to their, their true nature. So that the uh, even though we have, we've uh, heard these teachings over and over again, <laughs> Why are we still suffering? <laughs> Why are we spending a Sunday afternoon sitting down to, to listen to these teachings? It's because, like the Buddha said, because of not fully understanding four things, you and I have had to travel and trudge through this long round. So it's because that those, those principles haven't really entered the heart. They're not in, uh, uh, informing every single moment of, of our experience. So I feel that this day, this auspicious day of the full moon, when the Buddha set in motion the wheel of Dhamma, he put this understanding that had arisen within within the heart into words and then conveyed it through the miracle of instruction to his friends, the five companions in the deer park. And one of them, uh, it was only one of the five Kandanya that understood what the Buddha was saying. And as he was speaking, then Kandanya lit up and the Buddha said, Anyasi watabo Kandanyo, Anyasi watabo Kandanyoti. Kandanya understands, Kandanya understands, he's got it. <laughs> and in the sutta, as we recite it, you still have that same expression of the Buddha saying, yes, Kandanya's got it. Okay, he understands, he could see Kandanya lighting up. So from that time forward, he was called Anya Kandanya, Kandanya who understands. So, <clears throat> so that miracle of instruction is also something I think it's, it's good to, on this day, to, to uh, reflect upon how amazing that the Buddha was able to put his, his understanding into words and for those still to, to pertain uh, 2,600 years later. And that right now, right today, that this can make a difference in how we handle this feeling, this body, this mind, this life, with, with these particular conditions. Uh, it's amazing. I feel gratitude for, for the, the Buddha's teaching and then all of those who've helped to carry that on, to embody that over the centuries, is very, very appropriate. And the more that these four principles can fully be embodied in our hearts, in these lives, these hearts and minds, moment by moment, then the more that our work in the areas of the family, in, in the, the workplace, in the monastery, in, the, in society, uh, around the world, then it can inform what we do, or what we say, the attitudes that we have, how we relate with each other, and then the the 10,000 to tens of millions of different difficulties that uh, are so, uh, that brew up around the world 
uh, all the different diff different societies where there's so much inequality and oppression and difficulty, these principles can inform all of those areas of activity where whoever's interested, whoever wants to to listen and apply these uh, these principles, these teachings, they can inform uh, the the work, the activity, and the possibility to bring things to a quality of well-being in all those different areas whether it's in India or China, Hong Kong, Palestine, in, in the Amazon jungle, whether it's in, in Britain, in, in Germany, in, in Scandinavia, Canada, you know, all over Africa, Australia, New Zealand, all around the planet, that uh, every single area where people are living and working and breathing and interacting, the more that these these principles can be fully uh, embodied and uh, understood, really received and, and actualized, then that can inform all of the, the, the interactions that, that are, are taking place in those different domains and help to bring about that ending of dukkha. So maybe the, the last thing I'll say by way of this sort of introductory piece today on this Asala Puja is that uh, one of the, the key teachings that I, I like to share and do so over and over again, again, <laughs> knowing these words have been heard over and over and over, but uh, it does uh, bear, uh, uh, bear saying again, is the, the Buddha's teaching called the arrow. And in this he, he's uh, describing the two different kinds of, of suffering, of dukkha. So there's the dukkha dukkha, there's the, the, the pain that arises from having a body and a mind. If, if you're alive, if you have a, and presumably if you're watching this webcast or sitting here in the temple, then there is life by, by uh, implication. So you have a body, you have a mind. If that's the case, then there are feelings. You can feel pleasure, pain, neutral feeling. So that the very fact of being alive in a body uh, means that there's going to be pain. And that kind of dukkha is inescapable. There's always going to be discomfort uh, at some point that is uh, non-negotiable. So that in the teaching of the arrow, the Buddha said, uh, it's like a, a soldier on a battlefield, and the Buddha, having been a soldier himself, he uses a lot of military analogies, similes, said if you're a, sol a soldier on a battlefield, is shot by an arrow. So that first arrow is the, the experience of physical pain. That is inescapable. Nobody escapes, nobody evades that first arrow. If you've got a body and a mind, there will be pain. So the dukkha that is talked about in the Four Noble Truths is not that first arrow. That is not, that's non-negotiable, that can't, be, that can't be escaped. And even the Buddha himself had chronic pain. He, uh, when he was uh, in his 80s, when he reached the age of 80, uh, he had chronic back pain. It's, uh, and uh, <coughs> speaks about it quite, quite openly in, in a number of teachings. And uh, so even a fully enlightened being like the Buddha could not uh, avoid physical pain. But this, uh, what he said was, with, the, with the, this teaching on the arrow, he said, the second arrow is the, uh, the fretting, the resenting, the negativity, the fear, uh, the, uh, the, say, um, the stressing that create, is created around that physical pain. Everything the mind adds to it. It shouldn't be there. When's it going to be over? Why me? This isn't fair. 
Um, all of that, that second arrow, that can be avoided. And so I feel, again, when talking about the Four Noble Truths, it's really important to get <laughs> your head around. Ending of suffering doesn't mean the ending of pain. It means the ending of that uh, proliferation, the elaboration around dukkha, ar around what we don't like. But also, it's the, the second arrow can be, can be stressing about what we like, having got what we wanted, trying to hang on to it trying to keep other people away from it, <laughs> uh, hoping that it's going is to be around next year, uh, so you can have it then as well. So that that second arrow, that is the dukkha that the Four Noble Truths refers to. And so that when we talk about the ending of dukkha, it doesn't mean everybody liking you, always having uh, neighbors who are quiet and respectful. <laughs> it doesn't mean never having any illness. Yeah, we'll, we'll have noisy neighbors, we'll have, we'll have a painful body, we'll get sicknesses. Uh, there'll still be uh, difficulties and pain and, and, uh, and discomfort for us and others coming from, from the natural order of things. But the mind will, will know how not to make a problem out of it. Which again doesn't mean being passive or just sort of being numb and uh, not taking action or doing things to help uh, reduce difficulty for you know, yourself and others. As I said, if you're hungry and someone puts food in front of you, you don't you don't have to refuse the food. <laughs> no, the, the, if the food is there and you're hungry and it's it's offered to you, then you can eat it for sure, and that hungry feeling will go away. But the the centerpiece, the the core of the four noble truths, and what uh, the <clears throat> that the wheel that the Buddha set in motion all those centuries ago, twenty six centuries ago, it's all about how to dodge that second arrow. That's what it's all for. That's the so it's arrow avoid, avoidance tactics. <laughs> is what the the teaching is about how to to live with this body this mind this society to live in the world and to uh, to evade that second arrow and then the more that we are able to to evade that how that doesn't oppress or or pain us then the more we are able to help others similarly to evade that second arrow and to to do what can be done to help uh, other beings uh, along the way also so I'll leave my opening reflections to that point and go to the, this week's questions. Also, because this is a Sala Puja, uh, then, and the rains retreat begins um, tomorrow, then we'll change the mode. So next Sunday there won't be these, uh, Q, this Q&A, but rather there'll be a, a more sort of regular Sunday afternoon talk, and there'll be, uh, we'll have a list of titles for the talks uh, on the website, and then uh, once those have been listed, then people can send in their questions according to the title, and uh, it's, your, it's up to your own guesswork whether your questions will match what the title says or not. But we'll, we'll find out whether that works or whether that's a, a very poor idea on my part. So anyway, first one. Thank you very much for planning to broadcast Dhamma Talks online. <laughs> so someone's been listening. Uh, so important and helpful for practitioners, especially those in more remote parts with no direct access to temples and teachers. I have a question on not self. Haven't we all? Smile, smile. Uh, is it not that somehow on a worldly level, self protects you from injury and death through fear? To survive in this world without the delusion of a self, is this where wise fear, quote-unquote, comes in? Is it the knowing of this that takes over from the self? Well, there's a few different dimensions to this, a good question, and um, an area that um, 
uh, say is useful to to explore and I've talked I've talked about quite a few times um, recently. So the uh, fear is one of Mother Nature's great uh, devices. I mean, it's, it's also uh, in the animal world. Uh, it's there uh, in, in many, many beings, many creatures that um, don't have much uh, thinking faculties. So fear is very much a protective aspect of the uh, of the, uh, the living world, and so that. Um, the, the the pulling away from things that are painful or threatening um, that's that's the way that many creatures most creatures survive it's only the ones who are the sort of top predators uh, like sharks and such like or polar bears that uh, don't seem to have much uh, much fear because they know that they're, they're at the top of the chain they haven't got anything to be uh, anything much to be afraid of uh, usually apart from humans with, with weapons but uh, the um, uh, the, f the feeling of fear is a protective device, so that's how it works. It's a painful emotional quality, so that when it arises, you get away from the thing that is causing that, so that it's, it, uh, it's a very basic and powerful method in the natural world to protect us. And so that um, it's, uh, the, uh, it's where the, um, the mind attaches to that, and uh, and spins it out uh, over time, then it really becomes a, a problem. So that the um, uh, so I would say that it's not so much self as an as an idea or self view that, that protects us, but just the the living system and the way the mind works uh, uh, in the in the natural order. Fear is a very primal and necessary protection. Like like pain is similarly. It, uh, it's what protects us. It works by being painful and uncomfortable, uh, uh, by being unpleasant. That's how it does its job. So uh, I would, uh, I think to, it's not good to demonize pain or fear. <laughs> the, they're, they're there for a very good reason. Our ancestors who didn't have fear or didn't feel much pain didn't survive. So that's why we experience it today. And so that the... Um, uh, The the issue come where where fear becomes a, a um, something problematic is where the thinking mind takes hold of memory and imagination and uh, remembers incident instances of of uh, when we were in danger or had painful experiences and so that it uh, it dwells upon those those fear reactions. There's a a very um, a very fine book by a scientist called Robert Sapolsky called Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers, which I often quote. And uh, he points out that a zebra on the plains in, in Africa, it needs to get, when, it, when a lion is nearby and it's in danger of being caught, then the zebra needs to get stressed. It needs fear and it, it sees the lion and it smells the lion and it runs. But it only needs to be stressed for a couple of minutes because either it'll get away or it won't. You know, either way, it, uh, it needs that stress reaction. It needs to be fully afraid to protect itself. But um, seemingly zebras don't don't get ulcers because they can't they can't remember having uh, or they don't worry about uh, well I escaped from the lion yesterday how will it be today and then be fretting and worrying about what's going to happen while they're just starting their, their day if there's no lion in sight uh, similarly they don't imagine well what's it going to be like next week or or, the, or next month uh, how's that, how am I going to deal with the lions then 
And so we as humans get ulcers because we can take that, that fear reaction and we can spin it out over weeks and months and years. We can sustain that kind of stressing uh, in, a, in, a, uh, in an ongoing way and so that it's a, we, we create fear as a, a neurotic problem because of the, um, the, kind of the, the thinking mind taking hold of those useful fear reactions and turning it from being a protection into being a sort of neurotic problem. And so that uh, in terms of this, uh, this question, yeah, we do need fear. It's, uh, it's what helps us to not just wander out into the middle of the road when the cars are, uh, are zooming by. It, it protects us. But um, uh, so I would say that's wise fear is then being able to be, uh, use that sense of, of caution when it's necessary, but also uh, the wisdom comes in training the thinking mind to, to not follow it, to, to not be feeding on it, to not to be dwelling on what happened yesterday or worrying about what happens uh, next week, but rather to, uh, to be cautious when it's appropriate to be cautious and then to leave things alone when there is no danger. And so one of the, the, the huge issues, particularly in the Western world, but it's all, uh, fairly universal around the, around the planet, many societies, um, where there's a lot of, particularly where there's a lot of leisure time, is that most of the suffering comes from the thinking mind. There might be a good food supply, there might be sort of, uh, a well-organized governments uh, and such like, and uh, a fairly, uh, I say, uh, benevolent society. But because of all that leisure time, because of the capacity to think, then there's a huge amount of anxiety uh, and you know, depression and anxiety coming from this uncontrolled thinking and the, the, the thinking mind making problems where there really isn't any kind of difficulty or danger. There's, there's, uh, you've got plenty of medicine, you've got plenty of food, you've got benign uh, people around you for the, for the most part. There isn't anything that is immediately dangerous or, or threatening or difficult. I mean, I'm very conscious of the coronavirus <laughs> factor as I'm saying this, but um, uh, the uh, uh, the majority of the of the time uh, the issues come from self-created dukkha the mind taking hold of things and creating anxieties um, and so that this is why meditation in particular is so helpful because it is uh, the very means whereby we can learn how to uh, not believe our thoughts we can train the mind to focus and to not get caught in these uh, the strings of imagination uh, in the past, from uh, from the past and the future, and rather to focus on the reality of the present and to uh, say be um, uh, relating to uh, each moment in a very fresh uh, and alive way. And speaking of relating to the moment, I see Ajahn Chandrasiri has just arrived from Scotland. So welcome, Ajahn. Good to see you. And uh, I hope the journey was not too difficult for you. So this uh, webcast will be going on for a, a little while longer, so uh, we'll have time to catch up in, in due course. So I think uh, that. So the um, so then the uh, the delusion of self that is uh, and uh, to survive in this world without the delusion of self, I would say that um, the. Um, it's not so much the, the self-view that, that is protecting us, but uh, there's instincts of, of caution and uh, being attentive and, and that uh, compassionate concern for our body and well-being of this life and other people's lives. 
and that um, the, the, there's no real need to be sustaining a, a self-view or to have a, 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 a kind of a fixed ego structure and that the more that we can see that the, that the ego or self-view is like a convenient fiction that we use um, to, to, talk, uh, to refer to ourselves, to talk about other people, that that's a, a far more helpful, skillful way of, of relating uh, to that. We, if we need to be a person, we can be a person. If we don't need to be a, in that role of that particular personality, we can put it aside. And I feel that that ability to put on roles and take them off to, uh, is a very uh, significant part of, of mental well-being. And that um, it's a, uh, a, 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 a habit of ours to always assume we've got to be the same person or we've got to be one fixed, independent, individual reality all the time. That is one of these causes of a lot of uh, anxiety and stress and difficulty. And so to be able to move more comfortably from, from one role to another, sometimes it's appropriate to lead, sometimes it's appropriate to follow, sometimes it's uh, appropriate to speak, sometimes it's appropriate to, to listen, so that to, uh, and to be sometimes the one who's giving the instructions, sometimes the one who's learning, so that it's, uh, it's that, that quality of adaptability and not having to be the same person or have a, uh, have a, a flexible sense of self or a, a, uh, a uh, say recognizing that the, those perceptions of self are rather like the clothes in your cupboard or in your drawers. You know, if it's if it's cold weather, you put on a jacket. If it's sunny weather, you get out the sun hat. You know, what's the uh, appropriate persona to put on for the day? And that um, those kinds of uh, uh, say uh, changes or that adaptability is uh, very supportive of of well-being, and so that. Um, yes, we can be a person, we can do the self thing, uh, but as long as the mind recognizes this is just a, a, a performance or it's just a, a, um, uh, something that has a, a relative value. It's interesting that the word persona comes from the Latin meaning a mask. So right there in the very the English word is the, um, the clue that it's a, it's a mask. <laughs> the person is a mask. It's also kind of interesting in the French language, personne means somebody and nobody. <laughs> this, the same word has opposite meanings. It both means someone and no one. Is, is there any French people here? I hope is that correct, Venerable? Yeah. Okay, next one. Uh, dear Ajahn, greetings from San Francisco, California. As you know, San Fran is a spiritual hub with all aspects of spiritual practices. As a new seeker on the Dhamma path, I'm overwhelmed by the choices of teachings from different traditions. My foundation is in Theravada Buddhism, but I'm also very interested in Sikh Kundalini Yoga. It is said that yoga is the airplane mode to reach self-realization. Not quite sure what the airplane mode means. Maybe it's sort of getting there quickly <laughs> through the sky. Uh, in the meantime, shamanic tradition teaches that one can realize non-duality of universal consciousness through hallucinogenic journeys. What should I do, Ajahn? <laughs> so I think be careful is my first thought. Um, staying on one path or try and combine different ones. I see many people here have the, have the similar confusions. Thank you for your help. May you and Amravati Sangha have a fruitful vasa. Well, very, very good question. Uh, having lived in the, uh, been around the Bay Area for 15 or 20 years, 
very familiar with that that range, uh, or some at least some of the range of spiritual opportunities. The the uh, Bay Area Spiritual Directory back in my day it was about half an inch thick. It's probably <laughs> it's probably an inch or two thick now. Well, but it's probably they don't, don't probably don't have a paper one anymore. But also going to shops like. Uh, Open Secret, uh, um, where they have every kind of spiritual tradition sort of laid out on the bookshelves and uh, all the different ritual objects from uh, dozens of different spiritual traditions and practices from you know, singing bowls and shamanic wands and uh, Buddha Rupas and Ganesha and you know, everybody. <laughs> so it can be very confusing. And um, and so uh, for my, uh, myself, I, I find uh, I'm quite comfortable sort of being interested or finding out information about different traditions. But uh, personally, I'm very comfortable just living within the domain of Theravada Buddhism and being uh, uh, in the mode of a, a forest monk and having that as a clearly defining, um, say, format for, for spiritual practice. Um, I feel that the... Uh, uh, the principle of the Kalama Sutta is really helpful in this respect, and you might be familiar with that. Um, this is where the uh, the Buddha was passing through a, a village called Kesaputta in in north uh, northeast India, and the villagers there uh, asked him uh, about what uh, what kind of a spiritual teaching should they follow and what should they trust. They said you get many many teachers and gurus and shamans coming through here. I think I, I quoted this sutra a week or, or two ago, uh, uh, so forgive me for repeating myself, but uh, I will anyway. Um, so they said we get all kinds of teachers and gurus and shamans and uh, yogis coming through here, and they each have their own particular teaching and practices, and, and then most of them seem to say, I'm right and the other ones are wrong, this is the true way. So how do we know what to trust? How do we know what's, what's valuable and what's real and what's going to really be of benefit? So in a unique uh, teaching, a unique sort of approach, uh, and probably uh, unique amongst the, the world religions, the Buddha made the point of saying, uh, don't, uh, don't believe a, a spiritual authority just because they are famous or they have a, a, a high reputation. Don't believe uh, something just because everyone around you, all the people in the village, uh, believe it too. Or don't believe it just because it's been told to you by your parents as being true, or that it's it's there in the, uh, the holy scriptures. It says it says uh, th this is true and real. And or if something is is uh, explained through inductive or deductive reasoning that it makes logical sense, don't believe it either. And he goes through this whole list of ten different criteria of uh, of ways that people tend to believe in things. And for each one of those, he said, don't, don't, uh, don't believe it just because of that. So he's somewhat unique in saying, don't believe me. You know, the, here he is being asked for his advice, and he's saying, don't believe me. Uh, but he, uh, the principle he encourages the, the, the Kalamas, the people of the Kesaputta, he said, so when you hear a teaching, uh, listen to it, see if it makes sense, uh, uh, apply it uh, to the best of your ability, and then see what the results are. If you see that it leads to uh, confusion, to conflict, to uh, more suffering and difficulty, then leave it aside. If you see it leads to, to more peacefulness, to more uh, harmony between yourself and others, if it leads to clarity rather than confusion, then you know, be informed by that and take that and use that. So that he is 
uh, he's encouraging them to use their own wisdom. And he's also, I feel, very beautifully and appropriately recognizing that they are the arbiters of, of truth themselves, uh, rather than saying, I'm, I know the truth, I, I have the uh, access to ultimate reality, and I'm going to tell you how it is. But rather, he saw that um, even if a, a spiritual authority is very reliable, we don't really learn in the same way that we do when we've discovered something for, for ourselves. You know, just like if uh, we go back to uh, our, our education in school or in college, university, it's usually the times when the teachers helped us to discover things for ourselves rather than just gave us a list of things we had to remember. But when you had to figure it out for yourself, you had to make your own mistakes and, and learn your own lessons. That's when the, the understanding sank, sank in a bit deeper and we got more of a real sense of how things operated rather than just memorizing a, a list of principles that we're, we're sort of taking on, on trust. So in terms of... Um, uh, the kind of things that you're mentioning here, the Kundalini, Sikh Kundalini Yoga and uh, uh, hallucinogenic journeys, um, particularly with the hallucinogens, I would tread extremely carefully. <laughs> In particular, also look at the results of the people around you who've be, who are saying, this is great. And if you talk with them, you listen to them, and you look at the results of that behavior or that kind of practice from the outside, yeah, then be informed by that as well, because if you can, if you can see that someone's enthusiastic, but they're definitely um, not uh, not impressing you or inspiring you with the way they're behaving, or that um, they are a bit too <laughs> a bit too glazed in the eye and a, a bit too a bit too excited, a bit too enthusiastic, and and uh, then be informed by that. Recognize well, yeah, this person certainly inspired and excited, but. Yeah, you know, is it really grounded? Is there something reliable there? You know, let's uh, let's let's think about that. Let's look at that carefully. And and I, I left the Bay Area about ten years ago now, almost exactly July of two thousand and ten. So I lived in that domain for quite a long time. From uh, from the about nineteen ninety was the first time I went to that area. So I was running into people who were doing all this. You know, even highly reputed vipassana teachers buddhist teachers who were also doing the occasional hallucinogenic uh, journey uh, <laughs> or engaging in various different uh, different ancillary practices and um so that uh, they uh, that's very much part of the the bay area style but uh, i feel it's most important to to trust your own wisdom to see what brings benefit and clarity and what brings confusion and not to be uh, just sort of impressed or 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 say dominated by the, what people around you say that just because somebody's enthusiastic or or they say you've got to do this you've got to do this you can look them in the eye and say just because i'm not interested doesn't mean to say i don't respect you or like you I could love you and respect you and say, no thanks, I'm not interested uh, in going down that track. And so that's a way of also uh, having confidence in your own insight, confidence in your own perspective and uh, not being intimidated or just carried along by the, the influence of others. So that uh, uh, I, I, I feel that uh, also it's up to individuals to make your own choices of people. I, I don't make people's decisions for them but uh, I, would, uh, I would say that um, also the, the five precepts, there's a whole dialogue, and there was even a feature in one of the um, uh, Buddhist magazines about whether hallucinogens, taking hallucinogenics was technically against the five precepts. 
Um, and so, to me, I was kind of surprised it was even a debate, because if my memory of taking hallucinogens was, is anything to go by, I would not want to be driving a car or performing brain surgery on anybody, or, or even giving a Dhamma talk in, in any of those kind of altered states. Um, and I said, oh yeah, but there was that, that pitcher, you know, he was, he was tripping on LSD and he pitched a no-hitter in a, in a major league baseball game. He said, well, there, these, these stories exist. But for every, everyone on an LSD trip who pitched a no-hitter, there are thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of uh, those who didn't. And uh, so that, um, and I'm happily going on record as saying, uh, personally, I consider taking hallucinogenics as a, a direct, um, uh, say, breaking of the fifth precept. Um, if, uh, if you were going for brain surgery, or you had an aortic aneurysm, like as a, uh, an, a, an aneurysm in your aorta, and the doctor says, um, well, I, I do best on mushrooms before I do surgery, so I just want to let you know I'm going to do a couple of these um, psilocybin mushrooms before I take up the knife. Is that all right? Would you go with that surgeon, or would you go with a different one? Just asking the question. <laughs> And so that, uh, yeah, so personally, I'm happy to go on record. I think uh, my opinion and my understanding of the fifth precept is that um, uh, that you, uh, uh, that if you are um, taking these kind of psychoactive drugs, then that is um, clearly a, a breaking of the fifth precept. And that the fifth precept is, is a particularly significant because um, what, the, uh, if the fifth precept is broached, then it tends to, to loosen or lower or, or fuzzy the the relationship of the mind to the first four precepts, and so that uh, it is uh, it's particularly significant in, in many ways, and so that uh, it has a bit of a unique position in in the five precepts. But I would definitely say that uh, using hallucinogens is a is a uh, contravention of uh, is a transgression of the the fifth precept. People are free to do whatever they want to do. It's, it's a, it, uh, it's, people make their own choices. But I would say in terms of choosing what you do and how you guide your practice, the five precepts is a really good, <laughs> very reliable uh, and supportive structure to use as a reference point. If you want to put that aside, that's, that's your business. But I would say that, um, that uh, having the five precepts uh, as a, a basic structural form for, for considering what to choose and what to follow and how to try things out, then that, that's, um, that's very, very beneficial. Okay, next one. Dear Ajahn Amaro, you've already answered multiple parenting questions during these Q&A sessions, but I have another one with a slightly different twist. Over the years, your advice has helped in many areas of my life, including parenting. I do my best to be a role model, follow the precepts, offer my children unconditional love and support, while also finding the appropriate times and places to offer them advice with loving kindness, based on facts, and with their best interests in mind. However, now my kids are teenagers who seem disengaged from the world and concerned primarily with the content on their electronic devices, like most teenagers. To paraphrase Khalil Gibran, I know that, quote, my children are not my children. Yes, I've quoted that myself a few times. But I feel a strong desire to help steer them towards more wholesome activities. Is this just another unhelpful desire? Should I smile and support them as they fill their days watching videos online? Or do you have any advice about motivating children? Oh, that's good questions. 
Uh, well, the, the, the two kinds of desire, you have chanda, which is um, a, uh, something, uh, the, uh, something which is uh, directing the mind. It's a, a quality of directionality, that uh, wishing or choosing. Uh, so it is desire, but uh, chanda can be based on very wholesome qualities. Dhamma chanda, the desire for the dhamma, or uh, the, um, the, the kind of enthusiasm for, for truth. And so that, that kind of desire can be very wholesome. So I would say that your wish to help your children is very much a, a wholesome kind of chanda uh, and interest. Uh, obviously, the difference between chanda and tanha, the craving, <laughs> there can be a blurry line between those, or any, if there's any line at all, and it can slip into, I want my children to be uh, fulfilling my wishes, or I want them to be a good representation of my values, and, and that, and it can slide from like, you, you're telling yourself you want to help them, but actually it's more like, I want you to replicate me. <laughs> I want you. To, I want to be able to tell people how proud I, proud I am of all your achievements. And so, even though it might be labelled, I want the best for them. It kind of drifted into. It can be my self, uh, my self, uh, say, uh, aggrandizement program that, that's that's taken over. And so that uh, there, a lot of mindfulness and wisdom, and, and also honesties, uh, is is uh, helpful in the mix. Um, Speaking about the children and their electronic devices, uh, a year or so ago, there was a family came to to to, uh, to visit, and I was chatting with them. And, uh, and this uh, an American family, and the uh, dad was telling me how that they had deliberately chosen a place to go um, uh, for a family holiday where there was no cell phone reception, and his eleven-year-old uh, son was um, thinking of taking him to court for child abuse. I mean, kind of joking, sort of joking, not joking, as they were walking along. You say, you know, Dad, I think, I think I'm going to get a lawyer, because I, I think this really does constitute child abuse. You know, we are, there's no cell reception. I mean, my friends, I mean, I can't post anything. I can't, I can't read anything from them. I mean, this, this, this is abuse. And so he said it was kind of banter, but kind of there was, there was also kind of a sting in it as well. <laughs> So I, I thought it was, it was very well represented by, by uh, the dad, I thought, and that that's the kind of dynamic that a lot of families have nowadays. But um, again, I don't make decisions for people, uh, but I, I feel that it's a very wholesome desire. That uh, it's Also, it's very important in, in terms of parenting. You know, I'm not a biological parent, but I have a lot of monastic offspring, that you, you don't assume that what's, what's valuable for you or important for you is what's valuable for the, the, the next generation. They might not be interested in what you're interested in. They might be interested in things that you don't see as having any value or you've never even heard of. And it might be something that's really quite a great benefit. It really brings a lot of happiness for them and other people and is really a, a good thing. But it's just not within your, your sphere of activity. Like when, when I announced to my parents from a, from a, uh, a page of an aerogram in Tha I sent from Thailand that I wanted to be wanted to be a Buddhist monk that was not in their range of possibilities for their only son that uh, this was not a career path they conceived uh, as any kind of possibility and it had no meaning or value or didn't have any kind of thing to base it on Buddhist monk what 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 why how where where's that come from so 
uh, and yeah, you know, I was happy that my parents well, they didn't understand or weren't very sympathetic, but they didn't stand in my way or make a big big problem out of it. But they weren't. They were certainly resistant. They were waiting for me to see sense and leave the robes for about the first 15 years. So any of you who are waiting for your mum and dad to understand, can be a long wait. <laughs> but uh, so I think it's important to respect your children's value system. That maybe some of the things that they're looking at in their electronic devices or the things that they're creating there, they, there might be something that's very useful. They might be connecting with, with their friends in, in very helpful ways. There might be something that is valuable that's coming out of that. Then don't just presume because your child is interested in something that has no meaning for you, that it, that it is there, therefore meaningless. So I think that's... Um, to be respectful of each other as human beings, even if the, the other is really quite young, you're younger than a teenager, you know, that uh, I, I find a lot of um, respect for families who are, uh, say, letting the, the younger ones be their own people. Not, not sort of abandoning, abandoning responsibility as a parent, but really respecting that how um, the, the child might have, uh, I mean, maybe both parents are scientists, but the, the child is really into religion and wants to have a shrine in the home and wants to learn how to chant and how to bow. And mum and dad are sort of like, really? Um, oh, okay. Right? <laughs> and they're happy to support that. Nothing that's come from either of them, but that's there in the child. And so being ready to, to let the child's own interest and, and enthusiasm uh, take shape. So I feel that um, to, to uh, as Again, quoting Khalil Gibran, your children are not your children, they are sons and daughters of life longing for itself. So to respect that uh, individuality that the children have while you are there, being ready to give a, to be a good example, to be a, a helpful friend and to be ready to guide and to also help them from, to stop from uh, injuring themselves and, and causing too much chaos with their with their really uh, you know, foolish and destructive activities, but there's, I said there's no formula for that. You can't. You can't. Uh, again, the five precepts are really good. If you want your children not to to be drinking or using drugs, it's really difficult to get the message across. If you are as a parent, <laughs> so that's a very good way of helping them to follow your example. If you want them to not go uh, drinking and partying, don't do that yourself. Uh, that can be a a good example. In terms of um, trying to connect with them, if you if you emphasize how different that they are, you just complain about them uh, looking at luminous rectangles all day long and that they're wasting their lives, uh, don't, uh, it's, it's not helpful just to complain, but I think the degree to which you can find things you can do together. Like I, I thought it was a very skillful initiative for that family to take the kids to a place where, there was, where they knew there was no cell phone reception. Okay, let's try this and see what happens. <laughs> so I think finding finding uh, ways that you can spend time together that both of you get a bit of what you like that the both you know both the parents and the and the and the children have get a, have a, a part of what is comfortable and important to them, and that uh, you're not just sort of dragging them into their world or or kind of complaining about their world and leaving them to it, but rather trying to creatively think about. Ways you can uh, uh, you can work together or, or, or engage in things that that 
are partially pleasing to to both of you or that you can both get something that's really satisfying from even if it's uh, there's a part of it that you have to endure along the way like like you know, like if parents taking the young children to disneyland or something that the 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 mother or the father don't particularly uh, enjoy it but they 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 go along with it because the, it means so much to the to the children um so that uh, sense of finding um creative ways to to spend time together and the, in that uh, some kind of physical engagement like climbing a mountain or or uh, you know going for hikes or some way of getting the attention into the body um and to be physically engaged can also be a very helpful part of that next one anapana sati sutta dear ajahn amaro Thank you very much for still holding these inspiring and motivating Sunday sessions. I have a few questions regarding mindfulness of breathing. It seems to be very much at the heart of the Ajahn Chah tradition. When you look at the structure of the Sutta, it's the Anapanasati Sutta, mindfulness of breathing, um, on from the part where the Buddha describes mindfulness of breathing, it looks like a gradual development of the training from, well, apprentice to master. Does the Buddha use the four foundations of mindfulness and later the seven bojanga, seven factors of enlightenment, as tools with which you can gauge the progress in your meditation and your practice? Um, well, the, both the, the sutta on the mindfulness of breathing, the Anapanasati Sutta, and the discourses on the foundations of mindfulness, they both have a lot of different dimensions. But uh, in, many, in many of the Buddha's teachings, sometimes it's, it's got a sequential element, like, starts off with part one, part two, part three, part four, and so on, and it, and it has a sequential quality. But often, along with the sequential quality, like the, like the Eightfold Path, there's also a way that, that different parts support each other or inform each other along the way. So it's not strictly a sequence. It's not just A, then B, then C, then D. But um, it's, all, it's rather talking about different dimensions of our being, so that the four foundations of mindfulness is not just okay you just do mindfulness of the body and then once that's that's been utterly mastered then you do mindfulness of feeling it, life doesn't work that way you can't really only focus on rupa on the body uh, on the kaya and ignore feelings altogether or, or ignore the mental world altogether they, they they overlap in our ordinary moment by moment experience and so it's it's more like there are these different domains uh, that operate and we can choose to focus on a particular one or we can see how they they work together um, so it's not uh, I wouldn't say it's like a, a a measure of progress but rather it's marking out uh, the different domains from the court them at the course like uh, breathing as in a sort of biological function the the uh, the first aspect of mindfulness of breathing the the, the physical breathing in breathing out and then to the quality of sensation, and then the quality of mood uh, that relates to it, and then the, the development of insight uh, ar around that. And so it's like from going from the most coarse or the most tangible to the most refined or intangible, but they're, they're all part of the same mix, like the body and the mind work together all, you know, all the time. They are, they're a spectrum uh, of, of experiences, of, uh, but and you can't really completely divide one off from the other they, they overlap but you can choose to focus more on okay my body is sitting that's that's a, a physical arrangement of this body it's in a sitting posture at the moment 
I can, but I'm also, even, even as I'm saying that, I'm feeling the sensations of the body. And then there's the choice of the words that I'm, I'm using. There's a mental activity. And then if there's uh, mindfulness and wisdom, there's a recognition that this is all just phenomena in a state of change, the different uh, patterns of experience coming and going and changing. Um, one of the, the, the um, say, windows onto mindfulness of breathing that I would like to recommend is Larry Rosenberg's book, Breath by Breath. I feel that uh, uh, it's a it's a really good um, say uh, interpretation and uh, walking you through the the process of mindfulness of breathing and uh, he divides it up essentially into four sections: breathing with the body, breathing with feelings, breathing with the mind, and breathing with wisdom. And that really uh, neatly sums up, I, I would say, the that spectrum of qualities that uh, you get there in, in the mindfulness of breathing sutta. And those are different areas that you can focus on, but they they all need each other. You can't if you just focus on the wisdom aspect and ignore the the physical aspect, then things are out of balance. If you just focus on the physical or the feelings and you ignore the rest, then things are out of balance. So that they all all the elements need each other, rather like a wheel. You know, the wheel needs all of the spokes for the wheel to stay integrated. So to continue the question. Um, do you basically start just concentrating on the breath until you can do, quote-unquote, that, and only then go on to the next aspect? So, as I said, not exactly. Or can you train each aspect individually and then bring it all together in Anapanasati? Well, I would say, just as I was, that they inform each other all the time along the way. You can choose to focus on a particular aspect of it, like put... Uh, put the reflective part aside, just, okay, I'm just going to go to the sensation of the breath, I'm not going to think about the rest of the body, I'm just going to focus uh, principally on that feeling of breathing in, breathing out, and consciously park the rest of the picture for this period of time. But you're also aware that you're, you are parking, putting aside other aspects, and so that uh, along the way you, are, you can use particular, say, um, attributes of the breath or a particular angle of approach but I feel that the most important thing is that all, all the time that each of the different aspects are informing each other uh, okay and the last part was because we train these aspects outside of formal meditation don't we am I on the right track here or, or am I getting completely lost in the brambles may you be may you all be safe and well uh, with metta so uh, I would say not completely lost in the brambles, but uh, if you can follow what, what I'm saying with that. And also, I, I would uh, highly recommend Larry Rosenberg's book. Uh, that uh, I haven't read a huge amount uh, on Anapanasati, but I felt uh, that was a really good, um, see, a, a simple, clear, and uh, very reliable, very thorough um, description of mindfulness of breathing. So, hello Ajahn, can you please explain to me in simple terms what a jhana is? Um, <laughs> well, one of the first thoughts that came to mind was that uh, jhana is something to have an opinion about. But that's a joke answer. <laughs> so, uh, essentially, jhana means um, the, the quality of, of uh, focusing the mind or the, the, uh, the mind... Uh, say um, gathered around a, a single uh, object, so that that um, 
Uh, also the word samadhi or, or samatha concentration, they also are more general terms relating to tranquility or, or concentrating the mind. But uh, ajana uh, is where that quality of focus or tranquility has reached a, uh, a, a, like a precise quality of being uh, fixed on a single object. And so that it's a um, uh, uh, probably the uh, the most accurate word in English to use is absorption. So the the mind is absorbed into a particular object, and then that uh, that absorption uh, it's uh, it's based on on skillful qualities. So that it's you know you can be absorbed in an exciting football match, or you can be absorbed in absorbed in an exciting rock concert, or you could be um, <laughs> absorbed in going to the dentist and the pain of having your your tooth drilled. Uh, those are, are forms of concentration and absorption, but they're also tied up with with fear and pain or excitement and such like. So uh, jhana is where the absorption is based on it's not based on fear or pain or excitement. Um, uh, or you know, aversion, but rather it's based on, on wholesome qualities of uh, of uh, peacefulness. Uh, is uh, focused on uh, a neutral or a wholesome object like uh, the the feeling of the breath, or the the image of a Buddha, or a, a color. Um, so that uh, the 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 object of a of a, that kind of tranquility meditation or absorption meditation is something that is either neutral or, or intrinsically wholesome, it has or has wholesome or calming qualities to it. Um, the uh, I, I don't know how simple it needs to be, <laughs> but uh, the uh, rather like. Uh, Entering a building, so it's an absorption um, coming into the temple here, as we are a number of us gathered here today. So, entering, we use the words like entering or, or abiding in uh, uh, in terms of referring to jhana, these states of concentration. So that there's there's often levels of of approach to that state and then settling in it, and so that you have. Um, the words that refer to being in the region of of, of jhana, so coming into the uh, to the the neighbourhood of a concentration. So, like you're, you're getting close to the temple, you're in the region of that. The mind is is getting settled down. You're you're kind of focusing on the breath. You're in the neighbourhood of concentration. You're mostly focusing on the breath. The attention's a little distracted here and there, but you're uh, in the neighbourhood. So that's called neighbourhood concentration, or drawing close. So it's like you're you're in the courtyard. You're getting close to the temple. Then there is the um, what they call uh, access concentration. You're entering the lobby of the temple. You're you're kind of in, entering the building. Your uh, the mind is is focused on on the breath. It's not really going anywhere. Uh, it's not fully settled. It, it, there's a, a bit of agitation in the system, I would say. Uh, and then. Uh, when you enter the temple, the mind comes into the temple and you get settled down, you're sitting on your the chair or the cushion, it's like, okay, we've arrived, we're in the temple. So then that's called uh, absorption uh, uh, concentration. So those, are, those words are, are used to describe that kind of arriving at that mental space and then settling down uh, within it. Uh, the... Um, 
John is also, uh, as I said, the, my, the kind of wisecrack that came to mind is that John is something to have an opinion about because over the years, even since the Buddha's time, there were people who thought, you know, John is the most important thing, concentrate, 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 that's the thing that really has value. And then there are the, the um, insight people who say, no, no, jhana is just a waste of time. You, know, you, you get so absorbed, it's so blissful. You, um, you end up being attached to the happiness and de delight of blissful mind states. You never develop any, you never develop any wisdom that way. So uh, even in the Buddha's time, you had the jhana wallas and the vipassana wallas, the kind of, and, uh, there's one particular sutta where he describes when they, they got, uh, they're having a sangha gathering. And uh, monks are asking the Buddha, how should we organize the accommodations? He said, well, put the, 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 jhana, the jhana team in one area and then put the insight team in another area, put the Vinaya experts over here and the ones who just like to hang out and chat with each other and cause, and, and cause a lot of confusion, put them all over there with, with each other. So that things haven't really changed a lot in two and a half thousand years so in terms of Sangha life. That <laughs> we each have our own different characters and focuses and so that um, not to make things more confusing, but sometimes people attach to the idea of, of jhana, concentration, and say, this is really important, and, and, uh, and I'm telling you that this is right, and the other points of view are, are really wrong. And they come up with good explanations, and other people say, no, no, jhana's a waste of time, you don't need to do all of that, just insight, insight, insight. That's vipassana, 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 that's what really matters. And so uh, Lumpur Cha would often emphasize that um, these are both aspects of the mind and that taking sides with one particular group or one particular idea and complaining or criticizing another so this is this is called foolishness and so it's far more important to apply these practices and teachings to really bring it really bring about well-being within oneself he also used a very uh, helpful analogy he said um, concentration without insight um, yeah, if, you have a, if you have a lot of concentration, like the mind is really good at jhana, but there's not much development of wisdom or insight. So it's like a candle. A candle's got a lot of potential, but if you're in the dark and you've got a candle, but you don't have a match, it's still pretty dark. There's potential, but you still can't see. So vipassana without concentration, if you have uh, insight but no, no concentration, then it's like having a match. You can strike it and you can see in the dark, but not for very long because you haven't got much fuel. And so you can see for a bit, but the, the, the match burns out very quickly. But if you have the two together, you have a match and a candle, you, you light the candle with the match, and then you can see in the dark for a long time. So I feel that's a very helpful way, not just of relating to jhana and the, the sort of bright and blissful qualities that come from that sort of absorption into a wholesome object, um, but also the, um, uh, the skillful way of understanding the relationship between uh, insight and concentration, jhana and uh, and insight. Dear Ajahn Amaro, could you talk about the topic of giving feedback to people and how to be skillful in it? Thank you. Uh, it's a good question. This gets frequently uh, asked about very frequently, frequently um, crucial issue. Um, well, giving feedback to people, uh, I'll say the first thing is, how good are you at receiving feedback? Because it's not just a matter of you giving it to other people, but if, <laughs> if you're resistant to receiving it yourself, or you don't want to hear things that people say, or to tell you things that uh, you're uncomfortable with, then the very basis on which you would like to give feedback to somebody else is going to be a bit dodgy. So that uh, I think it's helpful to, to look within uh, your own heart, say, okay, how open am I to receiving feedback from others? 
Okay, right. So then think about giving feedback to other people. So there's a helpful list of criteria that one is encouraged to, to use in terms of, of giving feedback. Um, <clears throat> firstly, is to, um, well, uh, uh, the, I would say, uh, do you want them to change just so that, that you will feel more comfortable? Or do you want to change them to change for their benefit? If you follow what I mean. So uh, uh, I'm not sure who asked the question. but uh, uh, So if I want you to be different just so that I will be happier, I don't really care about you. I just want you to stop doing what you're doing because it's, it's annoying me. Then it's not, I'm not really connected with you at all. I'm not caring about you. Uh, and so that if I want you to change, I want to give you feedback so that your behavior won't annoy me, uh, then the, that's not going to be very beneficial. Um, it's really helpful before even thinking about giving feedback to get to a place where I, I feel I should say something because this person's really hurting themselves. They're really uh, hurting themselves, they're hurting the people around them, and I don't think that, that she or he is realizing what they're doing. And so it will be useful for somebody to make some input. I guess I, it might as well be me as, as, as be anybody. And so that, um, and I, personally I found that that's not really, that, that one isn't really in the scriptures in those words, but I found that a really helpful principle because if I'm coming from, I want you to be different so that I'll be happy and I'm, <laughs> you're just this sort of annoying thing in my field of experience, then it just creates more division and more alienation and more dukkha really. If, if there's a genuine sense of empathy and compassion like, I care about you, you keep sticking your hand in the meat grinder and causing yourself m misery, um, maybe I can help you to stop doing that because you're causing yourself so much pain and, and difficulty, then okay, I should uh, find a time to speak up. Um, but So I, I find for myself that's a useful principle. So in terms of the, the more classical uh, advice, firstly, to, um, to examine your intention, and to to uh, to see that you are free of aversion and negativity. You're not coming from a place of, of hatred or self righteousness, but you're coming from a, a heart of loving kindness. So there's a metta chitena with a with a heart of loving kindness. Uh, there's a um, uh, which is a, a simpler way of what I was just describing in a bit more detail. So that's the first one. Secondly, um, you should ask permission to bring up the subject saying um, would, it, would it be okay to have a conversation sometime there's, there's something I'd like to talk with you about and oftentimes especially living in the Sangha people know what is it? <laughs> what's the problem? They, there's a kind of way that you phrase it even though you didn't mention anything they know <laughs> he's, got, he's got some gripe what is it? You, know, you can feel yourself tensing up immediately um, that, you know, they're not just talking about uh, you know, where they uh, <coughs> where where they can get a new towel from or something. But um, so you ask permission to bring a subject up. If the person says no, then okay, leave it. Yeah, it's uh, if they are resistant, then at that time, then uh, it's appropriate to, to leave it. Maybe come maybe come back to it later. Um, so then the. Uh, uh, the next one is to speak according to the facts. So what you know to be true or what you have experienced rather than just on hearsay, rather than I heard that you did this or, or somebody told me that you had said that. Um, 
uh, uh, that you are making sure to say exactly that. I, I heard it said that you did this, um, and so that that was upsetting. And I need to know whether that really happened that way or not. Uh, if you say to them, you know, you did this or, or you said that, and you weren't there, you didn't hear it yourself, that's called acting on hearsay. And so that uh, the encouragement is to to speak according to to the facts of what you've seen for yourself or heard for yourself or or to say that this is the story I was told and so I, I want to find out if what, what the the actuality or what your side of the picture is so sticking to the to the the facts also choosing uh, an appropriate time and a place to speak so that if you if someone does says okay I'll, I'll have a conversation with you you don't do it in the middle of the common room or a, a place where someone's just going to kind of walk through and make a cup of tea or or um, start talking 10 minutes before you're both supposed to go to the puja uh, but rather you you choose a, a time that's that uh, you've got uh, plenty of of, of, uh, of opportunity to speak freely uh, in a place where other people aren't going to wander in um, so that uh, it's not sort of going to be inconvenient or challenging or intimidating so that you are thoughtful about where, uh, where, you, where you're having the conversation and the environment of the conversation and then the, um, the, the final one of these five conditions is you should be free of the same fault yourself and so oftentimes people say, can we negotiate number five, please? So if, you're if you want to criticize somebody for getting angry and being opinionated, say, do I have to let go of all my opinions before I bring that up with so-and-so? Yeah. Yeah. Do I have to be completely free of anger before I bring up my issues with their angry behavior? And so, uh, uh, <laughs> seriously, I have had people say, you know, can we negotiate that? That was in California, but it was. Um, I think it's fair enough, and so that you, uh, to the degree that it's possible, to be free of the same issue, same condition, but also one in in raising a subject, you can say, you know, I realize I'm not completely free of this myself, but I I feel I need to, uh, to talk with you about this because it's something that's been upsetting or difficult to deal with and so you can acknowledge your own the work that you need to do your own shortcomings and so that's a a way of working with that that fifth condition but in principle that's good to to be uh, uh to be recognizing your own faults and not just criticizing other people's so that's um uh, some issues about about giving feedback and um to uh, so i hope that uh, helps things along and then the last one. Dear Ajahn Amaro, regarding various desires that we have, it seems that the more you give, the more it wants. And it seems to work the same way for different kinds of desire. For food, for love, for security, for respect. Is it the case for all of these desires that the best way of reducing them is to not to scratch the itch? Question mark and to just observe them, reminding yourself that it's impossible to satisfy them. Thank you for your teachings. Uh, very good question. <laughs> kind of goes back to the, the Four Noble Truths. Um, I think, first of all, recognizing the, the, the source of the itch and to, uh, to be able to name that a desire is a desire. Uh, that's, in a way, part of the, 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 um, 
the, the, the process. And the most important part is to see this is the mind in a desire state. I, there's this, this feeling of wanting. When it's absorbed, when there is that <laughs> the kind of unskillful absorption into a desire object, then the mind isn't even seeing it as desire. It's just want, good, get. And it's, it's locked under the object. So even the degree of, of objectivity that recognizes, oh, here is the mind getting caught into that desire pattern again. You know, it was food, now it's sleep, it was uh, affection, and you know, now it's vengeance, uh, whatever it might be, that, that just that degree of, of uh, objectivity is extraordinarily helpful. So, oh, it's that, it's that tune again. <laughs> it's that, uh, that, same, uh, that same flavor that uh, there it is again. So they're recognizing the chemistry of this is tanha doing its thing. So that even to that degree at that moment, the, the attention has withdrawn, has disconnected, has become, has disentangled itself from the, the object. And it's like, oh, it was, it was food, and now it's, now it's, uh, it's love, you know, now it's uh, uh, respect, or now it's security. Oh, it's, here comes another one, oh, and another one, oh, and another one, oh, look. <laughs> And the degree to which the mind can recognize, oh, it's, it's kind of shameless. It's just fire looking for fuel. It's, it's sort of a mindless search. The fire doesn't have consciousness. It's just, it, it just burns anything that's burnable. And so desire is kind of the same way. Anything will do. And uh, just being able to, to, to disconnect to that degree is, is helpful. Um, the more that the mind can see that and then to then uh, see the, the lack of value inherent in the desire object, whether it's food or sex or power or security or love or approval or whatever it might be. Um, uh, revenge. <laughs> uh, the, uh, or annihilation, you know, just to switch off to, to not feel. That uh, the... Um, the, d the degree to which you can see that that object doesn't have any intrinsic value, that it's not intrinsically attractive, it's not intrinsically good, doesn't intrinsically have meaning, that, so in a way, de-glamorizing it, sort of saying that the mind is giving that thing value. It's like an uh, example I often, I often give is if you're hungry, food is really interesting. Uh, if you're full or if you're, after, the, after you've got a full stomach, after the mealtime is over, generally food is, is uninteresting. This is the very same food that's in your bowl that when you're sitting down there you know, hungry, going, hmm, interesting. You know, after your stomach is full, the, 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 the last bit of food in your bowl is like, hmm, doesn't look very interesting at all. If that was the only food you were going to have that day, it would be, oh, <laughs> look, I got something. <laughs> and so that, that, that genuine seeing of the, the the desire, the desirability is in the mind. It's not in the object. It's not in the food. It's not in the person. It's not in the sound. It's not in the, in the the, the feeling. The the attractiveness is in the beholder. It's a, it's it's here. It's not there. To really see that and know that that helps to break the spell, and uh, the glamour that uh, that things have. Um, uh, sometimes uh, the one of the methods that Ajahn Chah would use would be uh, because he was very strict, very rigorous. But he also saw that sometimes by saying no all the time, you make, you gave things more power. So if he decided to give up certain kinds of of food, or he was sort of creating some kind of discipline, and he kept saying no, 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 no. Uh, 
and that the mind was get really obsessed through that saying no it, it, it amplified the the value and the intensity oh i've got it i got it it's really good you said no to mangoes this week you know just just one i mean and then the whole universe shrinks to the size of a mango but uh, it's like you know it's going to be the whole thing and and this is how, how the mind works it can be really crazy and so once in a while when ajahn Chah was a young monk and very much in his so training, training mode, he would, he would occasionally, that's close, occasionally sort of give the mind what it wanted. Say, okay, mangoes, you want mangoes? Okay, today we'll have as, as many mangoes as you can get in your bowl. So apparently he, on one day he ate 37 mangoes by it, uh, on that principle which is a lot, and they're, they're quite acidic too. So he said, mangoes, you want mangoes are going to make you happy, are they? Okay. So he filled his whole bowl and his whole lid was piled up with ma all the mangoes he could, he could get his hands on and uh, ate, his, ate his way through the whole lot. So even when he was feeling like, okay, that's enough, go, keep going, you wanted mangoes, mangoes are going to make you happy, keep going, keep going. And uh, well, there's a particular kind of sweet that they make uh, for a certain festival in in the northeast of Thailand, that sort of wrapped in banana, a kind of a sticky rice um, sweet that they make. For a, uh, and uh, he was focusing on, oh, this festival's coming up, there's going to be a lot of those sweets. And uh, moving into that kind of a craving mode. And he said, okay, you want those sweets? Okay. <laughs> and he did the same thing. I think he had about 84 of them, which is, a, I don't know what shape his guts were in yeah, at the end of all of that, but... Uh, so that uh, it's rather like if any of you are familiar with the um, the Shakespeare play uh, Twelfth Night, it begins with Duke Orsino saying, "If music be the food of love, play on, so that surfeiting the appetite may sicken and so die." So if music be the food of love, play on, so that uh, he was in love with somebody and was t tired of being in love. And he said, if music be the food of love, play on. So that's surfeiting. So by having too much, the appetite will sicken and so die. So by having too much of the thing that you want, then by overdoing it, then you can, uh, you can lose the appetite for that. So I think Shakespeare had a bit of insight into the same process. But if those of, those of you, the, the, the desire minds of those of you who think, oh, this is license. Okay, Ajahn Amro said, just give the desire everything that it wants. So don't quote me. And, or tread very carefully by following that. This was Ajahn Chah doing this. So he did end up as an arahant. So please so tread carefully. Um, and uh, giving desire all that it wants because it, it can lead to years of, of miserable vipaka. <laughs> having followed a particular uh, desires to to their limit so tread very carefully on that but so sometimes by saying no to something you do empower it you make it yeah you, know, you make it stronger you make it more fascinating by saying no 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 and so that then that occasionally saying okay come on let's let's you keep you keep saying no to this have have the thing that you want and and then pay attention to it and so that then even when a, a desire is is followed um uh, if there is a degree of mindfulness even as you're gratifying uh, a desire to then in a way to to sort of sp spoil the magic uh, by saying okay so here you are you're having what you want now is this making you totally happy is this, is this really bringing complete satisfaction? 
And then if you notice that little voice in the heart that says, oh, shut up, you're ruining the whole thing, then you, uh -huh. <laughs> you, know, you know it's working because that's, that's, that's the voice uh, uh, of, of Mara being forced to speak. That, that's the, um, uh, you know, the, the mind that wants to be uh, absorbed and fascinated by, uh, by sense objects um, that uh, the, uh, the, as the Buddha said, the, um, there are, there are uh, visible forms cognizable by the eye that are, that are delightful, pleasing, endearing. Yeah. One who attaches to those, absorbs into those, and, uh, and is infatuated by those, um, they have gone over to Mara's side, and the evil one can do with them as he likes. It's a pretty intimidating comment. <laughs> But it's like that by, uh, it's a sort of mythological way of speaking, but it's like if you have shut out that voice of wisdom that doesn't want to reflect, and it says, yes, this is good, and I'm going to get it, this is mine, um, then that is literally going over to Mara's side. You're absorbing the mind into the values of the sense sphere and deliberately shutting out the voice of wisdom, you're shutting out the the perspective of Dhamma, you're closing the Dhamma eye. Um, you know, you can't really, <laughs> you can't really close it forever. But uh, at that moment, that's what is being done. The, the Dhamma eye is being shut down. And that's also by drugs and alcohol, and particularly uh, alcohol that is a way of shutting the Dhamma eye. You're literally shutting down your inhibitions. You're shutting down that voice that says, is this really making you happy? Or, you know, why do you keep doing this? <laughs> or, uh, you want another one? And uh, it's uh, the, um, the, the practice of Dhamma is really opening that eye uh, of, of uh, uh, bringing that, that perspective in that does have, uh, spoil the chemistry and says, yeah, well, this is delicious, but it, it can't be an end in itself. Or, yeah, this is pleasant, but it's, it's very dependent. Or, yes, uh, getting away from that painful I issue is... It's, uh, it's comfortable for this moment, but it's not. Doesn't mean that you'll never experience pain ever again. So that it's uh, that kind of dhamma perspective is extraordinarily valuable. As as a as a loss, as a grief, where it's like coming out of a dream or or the illusions of childhood, childhood having to be left behind. There's a loss. There's a sadness. Of like, oh, I was enjoying that, or like, well, don't ruin it. <laughs> I was enjoying that. Uh, and yet that out of that loss there's also a growing there's a there's a a, a development a waking up that we experience even as there that sort of shedding of an illusion we're waking up into the reality of of the way things are and that uh, and there's a much greater freedom and also the, the the foundation of reality itself is is there when that those pleasant or cherished illusions are, are left behind so I'll leave it there for this week. Thank you for these good questions. And uh, next uh, next week we'll have a different format.